podcast listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today is Thursday, January the 12th, 2023, and I'm joined here on Zoom all the way in uh, Vancouver, Canada, by academic professor David Cheng Cheng to talk about his book, The Hijacked War, the story of Chinese POWs in the Korean War. But before we get started, I'd like to remind everybody, please leave a review about this podcast and a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you use, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audible, etc. And please share this episode with colleagues and friends and even people you don't know and enemies and frenemies, uh, especially frenemies. And what's more, like and subscribe to the podcast. Second, check out nknews.org, where you can find lots of in-depth stories about North Korea, written by my excellent journalistic colleagues every day. And consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day. Third, you can follow NK News Org on Twitter. Now, to introduce my guest today, David Cheng Cheng is Associate History of a Professor of History at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. You can find him on Twitter at David Chang Cheng. We'll send the link in the show notes so you can find that. His book, The Hijacked War, the story of Chinese POWs in the Korean War, was published in January 2020. So it's already out in all good bookstores and has been very favorably reviewed. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, David. Thank you, Jacob, for the invitation. It's great to be here. Now, David, there have been many books written on the Korean War ever since it started way back in 1950. And there are so many uh, different perspectives. And you've introduced readers to a brand new perspective, that of the 21,000 or so Chinese soldiers who were imprisoned by the United Nations forces. Uh, I wonder if we can start with the uh, specific and then zoom out to the more general. I'd like our listeners to hear a little bit about the remarkable story of Yang Shuji, who died just two weeks ago on the last day of 2022 at the age of 100. And he was born in mainland China, but died in Taiwan. Tell us a little bit about his life story, where he was from, and how he ended up where he did. I think that'll be a good human way to get into your book. And I'll ask our managing editor to share the video that you put up on your YouTube channel in the show notes so that people can go and have a look at that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, Mr. Yang Shuzhi, actually, he has several names. He changed several names in his lifetime. Ah. First, he was born in Sichuan in 1922, and he was admitted to the Wangpo Military Academy. Uh, in 1940, 1940, but he dropped out. He did not finish. Mm. Then in 1944, he volunteered for the Ch Chinese Youth Expeditionary Forces, and he was sent to Rangar, India for training, and he became a wireless operator for the, the CBI, in the CBI China-Burma-India theater, trained by the Americans. Yeah. In 1944, when the campaign in North Burma finished, he returned to China in Kunming and he joined the China's first paratrooper unit, the com commando force, wow. where he was trained by the OSS. And he participated in one of the very few uh, para paratroop operations to uh, to overtake this Japanese-held airstrip. Mm. But during the Civil War, he was captured by the communists in one of the epic battles, in the last epic battles, uh, in end, at the end of 1948, somehow he managed to escape mm -hmm. and he escaped back mm -hmm. to Nanjing and then went all the way back to his hometown. But very quickly, he realized when the communists took over, he realized he could not survive. So he switched to a new name with the help of the relative and he assumed a new identity as a truck driver. 
All right, so he hit his past history. However, when the Korean War broke out, the Chinese communists were desperate in desperate yeah. need of truck drivers. So he was mm. drafted to go to Korea. And he drove trucks into Korea. And in one battle, uh, in one uh, aerial attack, so his truck was strafed by the American airplanes and yeah. the truck broke down. He just decided, heck, I just, I, why don't I switch to the side? Mm. And luckily, I found his doc, uh, his interrogation records, which huh. was produced just a month after his capture, in which he detailed his life story, which matches exactly, almost exactly what he told me almost 70 years later wow. in 2014-15. So while, while he was in the prison camp, he very quickly emerged as one of the top anti-communist prisoner leaders mm -hmm. who demanded to go to Taiwan. Somehow, it, the Americans did not let them go until the end of the Korean War. And in around the time of the Armistice Agreement in the summer of 1953, he was again drafted by the American Army Intelligence Unit, oh. which this special unit called Unit Auxiliary Unit A240. Mm -hmm. And he was drafted, and these about 100 to 300 Chinese prisoners, most some of the most devoted or most committed anti-communist prisoners, best educated, most fit, they were selected in this yeah. secret program. They were trained initially in Japan, later in Korea, in the mm -hmm. Sangha uh, Island, a little island off Incheon. Mm -hmm. And they were trained and they were sent into North Korea by sea, uh, on land, and by airplane. So he he undertook multiple trips into North Korea. Wow. And most of them by uh, on foot, which were short. Yeah. And he probably completed two aerial, like parachute drops into North Korea. Mm -hmm. And he survived both, which was almost uh, impossible. Well, and was he one there to get, uh, to get intelligence? Yes, to gather intelligence. And they carried the radio sets and sent out the signals. And he, because he was trained, uh, he received wireless training back all the way back in World War II in Rangar, yeah. uh, in the CBI. And during the Chinese Civil War, he served as a wireless opera specialist. So he's most experienced. So he managed to survive and walked back. And one of the operations he told me, I did not believe it at all initially. He said he was put into the, the bomb bay of this airplane. He says oh. F-86, probably, maybe not F-86, but the high speed, either a, a bomber or a fighter jet. And yeah. when they flew over North Korea, they opened the bomb bay and he dropped. And then they opened the, opened the parachute. I could not believe it, what he told me initially, wow. but then the last year, huh. yeah, with well, the death of the Sink, this American OSS officer, who mm -hmm. was the founders of the, the OSS program, and also participated in in the operations in China and also in Korea. So in yeah. his in his memoir, Sing Globe, and he talked about this hollow, high altitude, low opening parachute mm. uh, for special agents, which matches exactly what he described. So it, the only difference is the model of the airplane. So Sing Globe, in, in his book, he he mentioned the airplane they used was the bombers, but which is still much higher speed yeah. than the traditional transport planes. So he served in the special unit and survived. And eventually he became a trainer for other agents. Even after the, all the agents, most of the agents eventually, the survivors went to Taiwan in early January, January 1954. And mm -hmm. he stayed for another eight months to continue yes. these operations. Eventually he went back to Taiwan 
and he continued to serve in military intelligence. And he was posted on the Matsu Island, very close offshore island near near Fujian province. And mm -hmm. he infiltrated the mainland several times and then hijacked the fishing boats, uh, on, uh, the mainland fishing boats. Wow. Eventually, he quit his military service in 1961 and he started his restaurant business. And he had several different restaurants. The last one he held was the one right outside the Zhengzhi Dashi near Muzha. And he was running the restaurant with a couple of partners. And mm -hmm. just shortly before he died, he still goes to the restaurant every day. But he he was infected with COVID and oh. he he was in ICU for a couple of weeks, more than a couple of weeks, and then eventually he passed away right. on the last day last year. Yeah, 2022, December 31st. And in the uh, the short video that people can find on your YouTube channel, you actually show him at the age of 100 uh, cooking uh, in his restaurant. Well, that time it wasn't 100. That, oh, that okay. was my first. I, I first met him. It was 2000, shot with 2014, still oh, wow. at the age of 94, 90. So he was only, 94. he was a young 94. <laughs> yes, yes. And he drove. I was very scared. Goodness. He drove, took me on the highway and took me to visit another former special agents right who's the survivors yeah okay so that's a, a an amazing uh, story to begin with so let's uh, broaden our scope now so in october 1950 china entered the korean war in the form of the chinese people's volunteers and over the course of the following three years do you have any idea roughly how many chinese soldiers fought in the korean war yeah because the units came in and out i think altogether more than three million Right. Men went in and out altogether, yeah. right? Now Including these... also the laborers. Yeah. Ah, okay, so right. the numbers three million. Now these soldiers were not sent as members of the People's Liberation Army, but as Chinese People's Volunteers. Why was this? Was this a a cover so that Mao could say that the Chinese state was not involved in the war, that it was individual volunteers? Initially, uh, I think they decided to use this, this term, volunteers, as a way to hide the Chinese uh, government's true mm -hmm. intention to lure MacArthur deeper into the north. But it, of course, later on, became very obvious that the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Uh, but then I think they already used this, this term. They just continued to use it. But initially, I think one of the consideration was to use this term to deceive the Americans. Mm. And I, I understand that even until the 1990s, when China uh, finally uh, withdrew from the Military Armistice Commission, that they, they kept up that name, the, the Chinese People's Volunteers, and, and wore uh, uniforms without PLA markings. Uh, was that story consistently maintained by China since 1950? Or... Was there ever a slip-up and an admission that actually it was really the PLA fighting in Korea? I think in China, I think people have never had any any, any doubt uh, these were the PLA. They were uh -huh. they were they were not really like uh, they were not volunteers or small number mm -hmm. or like or small band of soldiers. Yeah. But I think for the Chinese people, there was no never any doubt. They were just PLA. They just uh, the People's Liberation Army at a different stage. Mm -hmm. you know, its history had a different have different names it's like the red army right yeah. the 1920s 30s so just people uh, the people volunteer army so no difference than the poa i think in china people say it interchangeably because they also kept the same designation as same unit numbers mm. so there was no confusion for the mm. amount of chinese i think the only purpose to confuse the americans was just the initial couple of months right. later it became very clear but they already decided on just keeping this name now, of the uh, the three million or so 
Chinese who, who were in the uh, Korean War. What were the, the casualty numbers like throughout the entire war? Yeah, I think this, this, this is a hotly debated issue, right? Traditionally, we hear some very staggering numbers saying like uh, 1 million Chinese were killed in, in Korea. Or but sometimes, of course, it's very confusing and people use it very liberally killed or wounded. Right. But I think the exact number, I think uh, nowadays that the most scholars agree, uh, the most uh, precise number probably is the number pr pr provided by the Dandong's the museum for mm -hmm. the, the Korean War. Right? That number is produced by that museum collecting all figures from different lo localities or different yeah. counties all over the country. So they provide the tally, the people who are killed each county. Mm. Then they compile them together. The number is 190,000. Oh, so 190,000 is, okay. Yeah, 190,000. So it's much smaller than people previously. Much smaller, yeah. Yeah, much smaller. And the that number also included the laborers who uh, killed yes. truck drivers who were not, they were, could be considered civilians. So right. altogether 190,000. Personally, I think that's probably reasonable because the number of the Americans killed in Korea is about 33,000, right? Uh -huh. 33,000. So that's already six times more. Yeah. So I think that's probably close to mark to right. the actual number. And also look at the, for example, in my book, one chapter devoted to the fifth campaign, the spring offensive. Mm -hmm. So in that offensive, that's the largest debacle. That but was the in number, April 1951, right? Yeah, April to May or early June to Got it. 1951. There are two phases of this campaign. So looking at the one the particular division, 180th division, division which was uh, suffered the greatest loss in the mm -hmm. entire Korean War on the Chinese side, but the number of soldiers actually killed is quite limited. Hmm. So all these numbers previously here on the internet or people talk pretty loosely. I don't hmm. think that's accurate. I think 190,000 right. probably is the most reliable figure. Okay, and 21,451 members of the Chinese People's Volunteers were taken prisoner uh, by the United Nations forces, uh, including uh, Mr. Yang, who you were telling us about earlier. Uh, I believe that the, the number of North Korean soldiers captured was much larger, wasn't it? Somewhere in the order of 100,000? Oh, yeah. So the Korean number actually is, is very difficult to, to, to calculate because uh, the number of the prisoners the UN captured mm -hmm. on the North Korean side is more than 150,000. Oh. 150,000. However, once the, they, were, they were captured, there were various efforts to reclassify the prisoners, especially mm -hmm. for the, the Southerners who were part of this uh, MPA, the, right. the North Korean army, but they were of the Southern origin. So then the United Nations Command reclassified them as civilian internees. Ah. So the and they released several batches of these civilian internees. Right. So eventually, the number of uh, purely North Korean, this still considered the prisoner war. Yes, mm -hmm. as you said, it's probably about one hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And did um did the North and the North Koreans and the Chinese hold a similar number of prisoners of war? You mean they held the Americans? Well, Americans and other yeah United Nations forces and and civilians. Oh, yeah, but, but the prisoners captured by the communist side, they were held uh, initially by the North Koreans. Yes. But late, later, because they had a very high death rate, eventually mm. 
the North Korean transferred most of the international prisoners, yeah. the Americans and uh, Australians, Canadians, transferred mm -hmm. them to the, the Chinese side. And do you know roughly how many people we're talking about? The Americans, about 3,000. 3,000. Yeah. Okay. So it was a much smaller yeah. number of prisoners in total. Oh, then. yeah. So right. that's the whole reason why why the armistice negotiation eventually was uh, hit, hit impasse because the number, the ratio was such a lopsided. Right. And right. then the American side did not want to return all prisoners on the all for all exchange. Mm -hmm. And President Truman said that's not an equitable basis. So he mm -hmm. wanted to get something else in addition to that small number of UN prisoners. Right. Now, we'll come back to that uh, a bit later on. But uh, first of all, the uh, the Chinese and North Korean prisoners of war were mostly held uh, interned in large prison camps on the islands of Kojado and Chejudo uh, in the south of Korea. Ultimately, of those 21,000 or so uh, Chinese prisoners, more than 14,000 of them, or about two thirds in total, uh, were not sent back to communist or mainland China, but to nationalist Taiwan. And if you could just briefly tell us uh, the process through which this happened, because we'll get into more detail later on. Yeah. Uh, so the so the large number of Chinese prisoners captured occurred during the fifth campaign in mm -hmm. in May and June 1951. So the number of the prisoners surged from about 3,000 all the way to near 17,000 just in a short span of two months. Yeah. And most of the prisoners initially they were all held in Busan, then mm. the number increased. In mid-1951, the UN moved the, most of the prisoners to the, the island of Kojido mm -hmm. and the Koji Island. And But there was a civil war broke out in the prison camps, so the, the UN command almost lost control of the camps and the UN commandant was was kidnapped mm -hmm. by this North Korean prisoners then yeah that was a brigadier general Francis Dodd yes yeah then it, it was followed by the by the violent crackdown then the prisoners were segregated mm -hmm. uh, so the anti-communist and and the pro-communist prisoners they went through a screening so they were separated and then the Chinese prisoners were all shipped moved to to Chejudo uh -huh. and to different camps, one near the Chejudo city, one near Morsopo, the anti-communists. So they were uh, miles, miles apart. Mm. And for the Koreans, the communist prisoners, so they were kept in Chejudo and other islands and some in Pusan. Koreans were in Kujido and mm -hmm. other islands. The Chinese were in Chejudo since July, 1952. And at the time, the arm armistice agreement was signed in July 1953. Yes. Immediately after that, prisoners were exchanged. Actually, before that, in in May, all the all the second wounded prisoners were exchanged already as a small switch. Right. And after the armistice agreement. Yeah. Yes. After the armistice agreement was signed, then those prisoners, the so-called pro-communist prisoners who wanted mm -hmm. to return, so they were exchanged in Panmunjom in August and early September, but still. There were 14,000 Chinese prisoners still refused to return to China. Mm -hmm. And plus, there were seven about 7,000 North Korean prisoners. They claimed to be anti-communists. They refused to return. Yeah. So following the terms of the reference of the Armistice Agreement, so these so-called anti-communist prisoners, they again, they were shipped from Kojido, Chejudo, all the way back to Panmunjom. Mm-hmm. And in this neutral zone controlled by the, uh, the Neutral Nation Repatriation Committee, yep. which is composed of five countries, 
with the India as the head, mm. and also the Indian government provide the Indian army armed forces as a custodian force to guard the prisoners. So they went through another 90 days of explanation where the communist representatives come to the camp, mm -hmm. trying to explain to them, trying to persuade them to go home. But of course, most prisoners, they reject even this process. So very few number, very small number of prisoners managed to switch side to go mm. back home. And most of these prisoners, uh, the anti-communists, they had a very strong control over all these so-called anti-communist prisoners. So they couldn't. At the end of the 90 day, very, very small number of prisoners switched side. Then there was a stalemate for another 60 days. Then eventually the neutral nation, neutral nation repatriation committee uh, dissolved and the prisoners had to be returned right. to the UNC. The UNC immediately transferred the South Koreans to ROK mm -hmm. and the Chinese anti-communist prisoners to Chiang Kai-shek's representatives and they were shipped by uh, U.S. Navy from Incheon on January 20th, the 21st, then they boarded ships and they went to Taiwan. So that's in Taiwan. Once they arrived in Taiwan, three days, three or four days later, they were celebrated as anti-communist anti heroes. Okay, let's uh, back up a little bit there and talk about the, uh, the armistice talks began uh, roughly a year into the war in the summer of 1951, right? Yes. Uh, when did the issue of voluntary repatriation come up and become the uh, the sticking point or the impasse of negotiations? Yes. Initially, a few people thought prisoners would become an issue. So on the armistice agenda, which took a few weeks for them to figure out what's the agenda, mm. and prisoners, of course, the most obvious contention point is demarcation line right, right. So where do you stop fighting? the parallel or the actual line of control so mm. that took them a while to figure out but actually they came to a conclusion pretty quickly just four months mm -hmm. by the by the end of uh, november november 27 yeah. both sides agreed on the actual line of control they already marked the map they agreed then the next the fourth agenda item which was the prisoners mm -hmm. and unexpectedly that became a sticking point so the fourth item so which came they began negotiation in december but then very quickly they realized that is more complicated than yeah. everybody thought so on december 18th the first both sides exchanged the data right the roster the mm -hmm. number of prisoners yeah and then both sides accused the other for providing incomplete roster. But mm. overall, the larger picture is very clear. The communist side held a very small number of UN prisoners, about yeah. 10,000, including 3,000 Americans. And the UN side, their number is much, much greater, more than 100,000. Mm. So, so this lopsided ratio gave, tempted President Truman to ask for something more, want to get something else. So the Americans came up with all kinds of schemes trying to get something else. Because in theory, following the Geneva Convention, 1949, the prisoners should return home. That should be all for all exchange without, uh, it should be very clear. But the Americans start to devise all kinds of formulas. Initially, they say, okay, we want to do a one-for-one -one exchange, which of course is non-starter. I mean, very quickly, the UN side, uh, the communist side exhausted their prisoners. Yeah. Uh, then the the UN says to have more than one hundred thousand prisoners. That's not going to happen. So mm. then they start to think of other formulas. They don't want to one for one. It's not going to work. All for all, 
they won't agree to, then the Americans start to think of uh, other schemes. So on January 2nd, 1952, so the um, UN side proposed voluntary repatriation, give prisoners choice. Yeah. And so from January 52 until uh, July 53, uh, so about a little bit more than 18 months, those uh, negotiations continued. But to go back to, to World War II and this pr principle that you say uh, from the Geneva Convention is that everyone should be sent back to where they come from, no questions asked. Uh, I understand that at the end of World War II, there were uh, a number of, uh, of Soviet prisoners of war who were right. forcefully repatriated to the Soviet Union, despite their pleas to not go back to the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Americans and the British who forced them to go back found out later on that they had been shot or killed by other methods as soon as they had reached Soviet territory. And perhaps this rather than it being a scheme or an attempt to get something more, perhaps they were trying to avoid that situation again in the Korean War. Is that not possible? Yes, actually, you're exactly right. And that became a concern or became one of the motivations for some of the officials in, in administration. So they want to advocate voluntary repatriation to protect the prisoners, especially in view of what happened yeah. to the Soviet prisoners. Right. However, However, that was 1945-46. Another more pressing issue, right, happened before or before the Geneva Convention relative to the treatment of prisoner of war, which was adopted in August 1949. Mm -hmm. By this time, there's another issue, right? The Soviet Union kept many German prisoners yes. and many Japanese prisoners, right? Yeah. So, of course... The, the Soviets had come up with all kinds of excuses saying that the president did not want to return to the country. Mm. Right? So that's why the, the 1949 Geneva Convention made it very clear, uh, the clause Article 118. Mm -hmm. So all prisoners should return to their home country after the cessation of hostilities. Mm. So in view, the purpose is to get the Germans and the Japanese out of the Soviet Union. Right. So you can see there's a conflict between the different historical presidents yeah. might give you different conclusions or different priorities. So yes. the Geneva Convention 1949, I think their priority is to help the Germans and the Japanese prisoners held mm -hmm. in Soviet custody to return home. That's why. Yeah. So the concept is that all prisoners should return to their home country. Now, in researching this book, you actually interviewed um, veterans from the Chinese side and also some North Korean veterans. How many veterans were you able to interview and, and how did you find them? Oh, yeah. Uh, so when I was doing my dissertation, I interviewed about 33 prisoners on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Mm -hmm. But after I received my PhD, I continued. By the time I submitted my finalized manuscript to Stanford University Press, at that time, I interviewed about 80-some 80, 80 prisoners. But after the publication of my book, actually, I continued. So I altogether interviewed 101 or two prisoners so far. And how did I find them initially? This is through some connections. I just happened to, to know there's a family connection with one of the prisoners. I did not know he was a prisoner. And he went to the same high school. My grandfather went to Mr. Zhang Zexu. He was one of the main protagonists, yeah. one of the main pro-communist prisoners. Yeah. Right. So he went to the same high school with my grandfather, although not at the same time. So I went to meet him. He gave me a book and I read about it. I did not believe it. But then my classmate, Jeremy Brown at UC San Diego, he said, yeah, maybe you should check it out in the National Archives because he wrote an article about 
the Korean War mobilization. And he used some of the interrogation records from the National Archives. So I went to the US National Archives and found some of these documents actually proves what this, these prisoners, returned prisoners, what they wrote yeah. could be verified. I was pretty surprised. Then I continued to through referrals and to find more people on the on the mainland side, China side. But on the Taiwan side, I got a help from librarians at Berkeley, He Jianye. She introduced me to one of the former prisoners who lived in San Francisco. And through him, I went to the Taiwan that was received by the Taiwanese government, their Veteran Affairs Commission, their Ministry for Veteran Affairs. And I went through the Taiwanese government and interviewed some of the pres uh, former prisoners who lived in this uh, soldiers' retirement homes. They're called the honored citizen homes for oh, yes. veterans. And also through other connections and meet people uh, living outside these institutions. And also, for example, Mr. Yang Shuzhi, I read an article, I read someone's blog mentioning uh, they met this restaurant owner who actually fought in the Korean War. Then I knew he must be a former prisoner. Yes. So I went, I figured out which restaurant it was and I talked to him. Then I interviewed him multiple times. Yeah for several days on different trips to Taiwan. Yeah. And what about North Korean soldiers? How, how and where did you find them? Oh yeah, North Koreans. So this is uh, another ongoing project. So the North Korean prisoners, again, it's through the Chinese prisoner I found. Uh, at the end of the war, of course, most uh, for the Chinese, two thirds went to Taiwan and only one third returned to China. But there were 12 Chinese prisoners who mm -hmm. did not return to China or went to Taiwan they chose neutral nations. Mm. So they went along with 74 North Korean and the two South Korean prisoners, altogether 88 Chinese and Korean prisoners, uh, reject their home countries and they want to go to neutral nations. Yeah, so where was that? Yeah, they, in their mind, they want to go to Switzerland ah. or or Sweden. Yeah. Uh, unlike today, they open these countries open to, to refugees back then. They would not accept yeah. any of these Asian refugees. Or actually, some of them want to go to America, but the U.S. did not want to take them. Right. So, as as we mentioned, uh, the Indian government was the head of the Neutral Nations Repatriation Commission, and the yeah. New Indian Armed Forces provide the custodian force. So, in the end, they were stuck with these prisoners who want to go, did not want to go back to go back to their own countries, and so they had to take these prisoners to India. Mm. So they stayed in India for two years, and the Indian government tried to reach out to different countries, trying to find a, a destination. Because at that time, India was very poor. Yeah. They were very well treated by the Indian government, but they, they wanted to search for better opportunities. But none of the Western countries agreed to receive them. In the end, Argentina and mm. Brazil ah. agreed to receive them. So most of the prisoners, uh, they went to these two countries, mostly to Brazil, some to Argentina, and a small number of them stayed in India. Okay. So one of the the prisoner Chinese prisoners went to went to Argentina. Actually, he was a very well known anti communist prisoner. A lot of interviewees remember him. He was written in all kinds of accounts. But for yeah. some strange reasons, he did mm. not go to Taiwan. Mm. He went to India. He went through India to Argentina. So I found him through a Taiwanese association uh, through the Taiwanese association in Argentina. And my wife and I, we went to Argentina to interview him. Yeah. So in his home, he has all kinds of photographs. He was, he eventually, he uh, well, in Argentina, he became a very wealthy business person. Mm. And of course, when we met him, he's already near 90 years old. 
actually he just passed away on December 17th of 2022. Gee. Yeah, so yeah, he just passed away. Anyway, we first went there was 2014 or 2013, 2014. So he has always very professionally taken photographs. Mm. And I look at the back of the photographs, there was studio name, right? There's a, and there's a, a stamp on the back of the photographs, uh, saying Photo Kim, a K-I-M. Yeah. It's a Photo Kim, who's Photo Kim? Yeah. Oh, he said, oh, that, he's a photographer, he's my friend. Mm. What do you mean your friend? He said, oh, he came, he came, to, he came to Argentina with me. From, from India. From India. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. Actually, he lives in the, also in, in Buenos Aires. So yeah. I just went to, to meet, uh, then he asked his friend to come over. Of course, it's very difficult to communicate because yeah. he he spoke Spanish yeah. and he spoke Korean. I don't I learn Korean, but of course, I not enough to have a real interview. Yes. Luckily, my wife speaks Spanish, uh -huh. so she interpret, and so so I got the basic uh, basic story of the history. Mm. But so still, just through these in interpretations, is not, not ideal. Yeah. So in two thousand fifteen or two thousand fifteen. So 2016, 2016, I went to a conference at uh, in Seoul, so where I where I met two professors, Zheng Gengshi of the Seoul National and mm -hmm. Zheng Binzhong of Ihua. Mm -hmm. So I told them, I showed them the video I shot, I filmed the interview. Yeah. So they decided, to say, let's go, let's go, let's go to Argentina. So I went with them again yeah. to to Argentina and interview the both prisoners, former prisoners. And then while we're there, they told us, Mr. Kim told us, actually, these former prisoners, they had an annual re reunion really? in the last many years huh. in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. Okay. So the next one will be in Sao Paulo in February. So then we went again a few <laughs> months later to Sao Paulo. So we're, there were still five or six former Korean prisoners mm -hmm. yeah, at that moment. But wow. all the Chinese has passed away, or have passed away. So my colleagues, my collaborators, so they did almost the interview. Yeah, they did, they did all the interview. So the three Korean scholars went wow. and I went with them. So that's the, our one of the ongoing projects we're going to. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. A remarkable story. So going back to the, uh, the Chinese soldiers, when in 1950, when Chinese soldiers were recruited into the army and sent to Korea, what were their backgrounds? I've read or heard before that Many Chinese soldiers sent to fight in Korea were not communists, but were former nationalist army members. So they were deemed expendable by the new communist government in Beijing. Is that more or less true? Yeah, actually, it's a very common, uh, it's very almost like cliche explanation saying that the Mao sent the nationalists, former nationalists to yeah. Korea to use cannon fodders, right? This theory is very common, not just overseas, uh, outside China, but also in China. Uh -huh. People critical of the government they often refer to this theory. However, that's not accurate mm. because, first of all, the entire Chinese Communist Army or the People's Liberation Army, they were largely composed of former nationalists, yeah. right? That's obviously even the top generals, many of them were former nationalists. So by 1949, during the Civil War, the communists had defeated and absorbed so many former nationalists. So by even Premier General Lai, his own account, and in one of his speeches in 1950, he said, in our People's Liberation Army, there were almost 70% of our soldiers are former nationalists. Mm. But of course, the economy used a term called liberated soldiers, liberated right. soldiers, opposed to someone's just a peasant, peasant mm -hmm. soldier who never served. 
actually most of these low ranking or technical technical soldiers, yeah, like artillery, they're all former nationalists. Yeah. So the percentage is so high, so it's very hard to say. I mean, who are the Kalim fathers? Everybody, right? If if yeah. you can say Mao has this complete disregard for human life, maybe mm. that's true, but you cannot say he sent on purpose just to mm. send nationalists. Because all the officers, right, they were communists. Because the communists, once they defeat the nationalists, they try to usually they get rid of the high-ranking officers. Yeah. But they keep people with technical expertise mm. or like a doctors, artillery officers, wireless officers. Right. And then they have to train them. They have to indoctrinate them. So they go through a very intensive indoctrination and a screening. Mm -hmm. So for, for the troops who went into Korea, they had been thoroughly indoctrinated. Of course, they might not be completely convinced, but at least they feigned compliance. Yeah. So, so they were allowed to stay in the army and go to Korea. And they were totally integrated with the communist forces. So all these officers, there are communist party cadres. So you cannot say there was no purely nationalist unit sent mm -hmm. to Korea. Even there was only one exception. There's one army, the former nationalist 60th army, mm -hmm. which defected the communist side during the civil war. Mm -hmm. It was reorganized as the communist fifth army. So nominally the, the commanding general still the same, yeah. but in fact, everything else under so the whole structure had been thoroughly integrated with the communists. All officers, major officers had been replaced. Mm -hmm. And in one of two of my interviews were actually from this unit, but they were not the former nationalists. They were new recruits from other places. So it's just inaccurate to claim that. And right. also, if Mao wanted to consume these former nationalists, that's just not the case. Because especially Mao sent his units into Korea, they want to defeat the Americans, right? So they took yeah. it very serious. He sent in his the best troops, especially the first batch. They were the most his crack troops. Mm. It's not just some nationalists. If they were actually nationalists, they would have defected, right? Once right. they see the Americans, that, that didn't happen. So that's just inaccurate or mm. if not wrong. Now, some of the uh, the 21,000 or so uh, Chinese who were captured and imprisoned did actually voluntarily defect or surrender, didn't they? Yeah, some of them, especially the leaders. Mm. So in my book, I make an argument, even though 14,000 prisoners, two-thirds of the Chinese went to Taiwan. Yes. In theory, they choose freedom, but of course, they were in a prison camp. It's not like a democratic election, but they were controlled. Or there was this power structure, also the widespread violence. So it's very complicated. It, it, some of them were forced to go, some some of them willingly, some unwillingly. However, the leaders, yes, they were most likely defectors mm -hmm. on the battlefield. Some took a great risk to defect. So once they're in the prison camp, they took leadership positions. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure they can go to Taiwan because the U.S. government or the U.N. command never promised them they can go to Taiwan. So uh -huh. they had to fight for it. So these people, yeah, the defectors that were more likely to be this most vocal anti-communist leaders in prison camp. And so you argue in your book that these, um, apart from these voluntary defectors, these 3,000 or so anti-communist Chinese who, were, who really ran the show, apart from them, a lot of the other 14,000 uh, Chinese who chose not to go back to communist China, uh, that they made their decisions not in an entirely voluntary way, right? 
strong. That's my argument. Yeah, and the people who are you, um, I interview in Taiwan that also uh, attest to this uh, this phenomenon because you're in a prison camp. Even the U.S. camp authority, the camp commander who replaced uh, General Francis Dodd, he mm. said, "Are in prison. It's not a free institution. They did not have a chance to express their free will." Because they're dependent on the authority for food, clothing, everything. It was not their expression, may not be free. Now, didn't the Neutral Nations Repatriation Commission, led by India, conduct screening and interviews to ensure that soldiers were voluntarily choosing where they wanted to go? That's, that's, the, that's the idea, right? That's the design of the whole explanation process. So, the, in theory, every, mm-hmm. so at the end of the after the armistice agreement was signed and all these pro-repatriation, pro-communist prisoners all went back, right? So only these anti-repatriation, anti-communist prisoners were, they became the last remaining issue. So they were sent back to Pemenjong. Mm-hmm. And the Indian custodian force took over and the UN, UNC, so withdrew. So in this camp, in theory, it's controlled by the Indians. Yes. So in theory, the prisoners would go to this tent, explanation tent, to meet mm-hmm. the Chinese communist or the North Korean representative to receive a explanation or persuasion mm. so they can make a decision individually without the interference of their leaders. That's in theory. Mm. However, because these anti-communist camps were so thoroughly indoctrinated and so thoroughly mobilized and thoroughly controlled by their leaders, so they resist this arrangement. So in the end, it's about 10% of the prisoners actually went through this process. So they have so much disruptions, protest. Yeah. And so in the end, a very small number of the prisoners went through the actual, went through the uh-huh. explanation. And among the prisoners who went through this explanation, very small number of prisoners switched sides. Mm-hmm. But actually there were more prisoners escaped by climbing the, scaling the fence, asking the Indian guards for help, mm. than those prisoners who went through the process and the changed mind. Now, your title, uh, The Hijacked War, comes from the idea that these anti-communist Chinese prisoners took over the role of, of leading agents of the war from everybody else, from the North Koreans, the United Nations, and the Chinese people volunteers. Could you tell a bit about your theory? Explain that for us, please. Yeah. So uh, this theory, the hijacked war, actually is related to a another framework I came up with. So the two, so if the Korean War can be seen as two wars, or first mm-hmm. half, second half. So the first war, the first half of the war was about territory. The second half of the war was about prisoners. Mm. I think if people uh, accept this theory, then the hijacked war would make perfect sense. Let's first talk about the. The first half of the war, or the first, the Korean War, the first half was about territory. I think that's very clear. I look at the map. But actually, the movement of territories actually ended at the end of the first year. So when the armistice negotiation began in on July seventh, July tenth, nineteen fifty-one, it took them four, took the took both sides four months to reach agreement on the demarcation, mm. which happened on November twenty-seventh, nineteen fifty-one. So that's almost exactly half of the war, right? Then the second half from January, 1952, um, all the way to the end of the, until July, 1953. The fighting while negotiating, but the impasse was over the prisoners. Mm -hmm. 
but how did this happen? But of course, in the, in the past literature, most of the scholarship focused on the first half of the war, right? Most of them. Actually, the whole idea of two wars, this idea, actually, I was inspired by Bruce Cummings mm. in his book, The, the Crane War, that, that, sh that short, short book. Actually, he mentioned there were two wars. There was the war for the North, war mm -hmm. for the South, right? Northern Territory, Southern Territory. But, but then I, that made me pause. I said, mm. yeah, war for the North, war for the South. But it all happened in the first year. Yeah. What about the rest of the two years? Right? Mm. So that's the question. So I that's yeah, how come all the mainstream scholarship ignore the, the remaining half of the war, which was over prisoners? And why we entirely forget about the second half of the war? And nobody tried to give you explanation. So in the past, people just assume, oh yeah. For those people who are critical of the US government, they criticize the Americans for intentionally detaining the prisoners to prolong the war, mm -hmm. which just doesn't make any sense. What did the Americans gain from this, this propaganda victory? I mean, as Americans, nobody, no Americans know about the prisoner or victory. No one saw it as a victory. Nobody even, very few people even hear about this. Mm -hmm. right? The only place this prisoner war, the defection, large number of Chinese prisoners defected, was celeb cel celebrated. Only place celebrated in Taiwan was in Taiwan, Taiwan yeah. under Chiang Kai-shek. Even mm -hmm. today, people just totally forget about it. And in the U.S., nobody. A few people even hear about this, and that's why it it becomes the uh, the hijack war. You've suggested that the the United States, particularly President Truman, supported the idea and pushed the idea of voluntary repatriation for political reasons. Although later on they kind of disowned the idea, uh, as you said, they, the U.S. did not celebrate the Chinese defected soldiers being sent to Taiwan rather than mainland China. I'm wondering, were there also political reasons why China and North Korea? Uh, so strongly opposed voluntary repatriation? Oh, yes. Again, here's another division. Actually, the North Koreans, they were not opposed to voluntary repatriation at all. Oh. Just the Chinese. Ah. So that's one of the reasons, that's my theory, actually. That's one of the reasons the North Koreans resented the Chinese so much. Mm -hmm. And after the war, the Chinese gave the North Koreans so much aid. Yeah. In, that was a measure to compensate for the the loss North mm -hmm. Koreans suffered because the Chinese insistence yeah. getting back most, if not all, the prisoners. Actually, and was that a, was that because of a, a China was worried about a, a loss of face? Exactly. I mean, you look at today what's happening in China. This yeah. face is such so powerful; it's just almost irrational. But in in Mao's case, actually, in in this case, in the prisoner of war case, actually. Uh, you can trace the history, uh, the, the timeline can tell us pre precisely why the two sides, actually, their opinions diverge. Mm. So it, it, as early as January or February, February 1952, yeah. actually, the North Koreans already told the Chinese, uh, to the Pa Hongyong, the foreign minister, actually went to see Peng Dehuai, the, the commanding general of the CPV, and yeah. he said, yeah, probably, as my he claimed, it's my personal opinion, we shouldn't fight over the prisoners. Mm -hmm. Not worth it. But of course, it's not his personal opinion. He must be from Kim Il-sung. Right. But he, then it became very clear by the summer of 1952, once the screening was done and such a large number of the Chinese prisoners, the percentage of Chinese prisoners refusing repatriation was so high. Initially, it was almost 80%. Mm -hmm. eventually it was. However, for the North Koreans, it's not the case. The North Koreans, those prisoners of opposing repatriation was much smaller. 
So it's just like the it's flip side, uh, it's reverse. So the Chinese side is about four to one, four prisoner refusing repatriation, just one wanted to re return. But for yeah. the North Korean, it's just the opposite. So yeah. the number of prisoners refusing repatriation is very small. So actually Mao, so actually the Chinese negotiators in the front line in Panmunjom, they cabled Mao saying that now the number is already released. Uh, I think there's very little can be gained by continue fighting over this its ratios. But uh, Mao reprimanded his representatives in Panmunjom saying that you guys are very naive. Mm -hmm. Because you see, the North Koreans, their number looks much better. Our number looks terrible. I think mm -hmm. this American conspiracy trying to make us look bad. Mm -hmm. So you must continue. Of course, for the North Koreans, by this time, by early 52, they already realized there's no way they can gain territory in the South. They just want to stop the war, right? Like move on. Yeah. But the Chinese refused. So Mao, actually, he said, it's not about the numbers. It's, it's about this principle. Mm -hmm. Even if it's one prisoner, want to get him back, mm -hmm. get him back. So the dispute went all the way to Moscow. So in, in the summer of 1952, so different levels, uh, they, the Chinese representatives, North Korean representatives took an issue to Stalin in October. So Zhou Enlai, Kim Il-sung, Peng Dehuai, they all went to, to Moscow. And, and Zhou Enlai, each side made their case. Yep. So the North Korean is saying, yeah, every day we suffer so much loss. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, a worth, it's a worthless Chinese prisoners. They're chunkashes, gangsters. Why we, it's not worth it. Mm. And we get more people killed every day than the number of the prisoners. But Stalin sided with the Chinese. Of course, he wanted the war to continue. They wanted yes. the hostility between Chinese and Americans to continue. And he when, said... When was this meeting? Uh, that's in October 1952. Uh, yeah. Okay. A few years ago, I had American historian Catherine Weathersby on this podcast. And yes, I listened her, to that too. Oh, you heard that one. Yeah. Okay. And from her, yeah. I learned that uh, Stalin decided as early as January 1951, that it was necessary to, to prolong the Korean War. Uh, and this was long before the Americans introduced voluntary repatriation as a demand in, in November of that year. Uh, that right. Kim Il-sung, of course, wanted to end the war when he saw that, A, he couldn't win in, in unifying right. the country, and B, the destruction that was happening to his country and his people. Uh, but he was basically told by Stalin he had to keep going, had to keep the Americans busy. Uh, and and that Stalin also instructed both Kim and the Chinese to maintain a, a hard line at the armistice talks. Now, I'm sure you're yes. familiar with all this, but I'm, what I'm wondering is, does this challenge your thesis that it was the anti-communist 3,000 pro-Taiwanese soldiers in the PW camps who hijacked the Korean War uh, by forcing the Americans to make uh, voluntary repatriation a condition? I think the traditional historians, the, they made this argument that when they reviewed my book, they said uh, there, there are other issues, there are other reasons. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with, actually. Mm -hmm. Of course, the lo logic or the interest of Stalin is very clear. They want the war to continue. However, mm -hmm. they need to find this leverage, right? They need to find excuse. Mm -hmm. The prisoners provide the perfect excuse. If the Chinese accepted the American number as the screening result in mid uh, in May or July 1952, the war yeah. would be ended. So, and that's what Kim Il Sung argued. There's right. not worth it. Not Even worth the frontline negotiators agreed, but Mao rejected that. Then they took it all the way, took the issue, the disagreement all the way to Moscow. Mm. Yeah. Well, and since the the war ended so quickly after uh, Stalin's death. It seems that, that Stalin and, and his role in, in 
continuing to push for the continuation of the war was such a big factor in in the war's extension and that and that his death really sped up the armistice is that not a a bigger factor i mean how do you balance that off there against the uh, uh, your hijacked war thesis so stalin in august on august 1920th he told Zhou Enlai, right? He said the North Koreans have lost nothing except the casualties that they suffered during the war. And the Americans cannot defeat little Korea. One must be firm when dealing with America. The Chinese comrades must know if America does not lose this war, that China will never recapture Taiwan. This was in uh, August 1952 when yeah. Stalin met with Zhou. So later when Kim Il-sung went there, he said similar things. You just have to continue. Yeah. So they just, the prisoners were issued, provided this opportunity for them to insist on the war. Had there been no such a disagreement, then the armistice negotiation might have concluded in, in the summer of 1952. Or, but, and of course I'm arguing, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. what's the word? It's a counterfactual here, it's a hypothetical. Uh, it's possible that Stalin could have found another issue to, to keep the talks going. Right. Yes. He... Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Uh, but we don't. Know, but that's the only issue. The only remaining issue in uh, on the armistice agenda, uh, negotiation agenda. Right. That's just the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But perhaps you find another another reason. But uh, what we can see is the only issue is the prisoner war issue. Yeah. And he exploded to his fullest. Right. So the so these Chinese POWs who are located way down off the coast of Korea on Jeju Island. Uh, this this small group of three thousand. They weren't directly in communication with what was happening in Panmunjom, but simply by being opposed to repatriation back to China uh, and, and by Stalin using that as the excuse, you're saying that was how the war was hijacked. Am I understanding you correctly? Uh, so uh, the hijacked is, is the the prisoners, especially the, the, the anti-commerce prisoners yes. and the Taiwan, because the Taiwanese Asian, the Taiwanese interpreters, they got involved. Because the UN side, UNC did not have enough to not have any Chinese mm -hmm. in interpreters. So they had to, and the U.S. government wanted to continue this, this pretense that the, it was a limited war. So there was mm -hmm. no general mobilization. They did not try to mobilize these interpreters uh, available. There's some of the World War II interpreters who are living in America oh. during the Korean War, but they were never approached, uh, mm. asked some of them. So That's that the U.S. government let MacArthur to deal with it to solve the problem. So MacArthur went down to Taiwan to yeah. hire about 70 interpreters, 73 or 75 interpreters from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And they came to Korea, when they came to Japan and Korea. And some of them worked in the prison camps. Some people work on the front line and interpreters, interrogators. Some people work in psychological warfare. But mm -hmm. the, the interpreters working in the prison camp they smuggle information back to, to, to uh, information in and out and through mm -hmm. and to back to Taipei. And also in Panmunjom, because the Americans never had a quali fully qualified interpreter. So they had to rely on two Taiwanese interpreters. Mm -hmm. And the in Taiwanese interpreters, in their memoir, they, they recall over the weekend, they can borrow a Jeep and they drive to Seoul or, uh, or where the nationalist embassy personnel is based, then yep. they provide copies of the negotiation documents mm. to the nationalist embassy. So Chiang Kai-shek know much better than Truman what's going on in Korea, both the Panmunjom and the prison camps. Wow. So they were able to 
at the various critical junctures, they were able to they were able to make moves to precipitate uh, to preempt the Americans. Yeah. For example, on the day when the prisoner roster was changed, it was a mm -hmm. very it was a major development in the armistice negotiation, which was December eighteenth. On that day, on that day, because the Taiwanese intelligence probably knew very soon they're going to make this breakthrough, and then on that day, the Taiwanese nationalist Foreign Minister George Ye he made a he gave a t uh, gave gave an interview with the foreign press saying that Taiwan is willing to welcome these prisoners. Mm -hmm. On the first day, he argued it would be undemocratic and unquestioned mm -hmm. to forcibly send back the prisoners, and then in February. Two days before the Americans, especially Truman, was going to make the final decision if the U.S. government is going to continue to insist on voluntary repatriation. Mm. Again, George Ye in Taiwan gave this press conference and made the statement: Taiwan is ready to accept these anti-communist prisoners. Yeah, and then also the China lobby, the pro-Chiang Kai-shek, pro-national China lobby, were mobilized to create this public pressure on Truman. So that's how the prisoners worked in conjunction, anti-communist mm. prisoners worked in conjunction with the Taiwan to force the hand of, of Truman, of the U.S. government. So in that sense, they yeah. hijacked the agenda. Interesting. I've got one last question for you. In your introduction, uh, you write, the Truman-Atchison administration's arrogance, ignorance, and negligence led the United States to adopt inherently self-contradictory policies. Can you explain what was the self-contradiction? Yeah, so this is a voluntary repatriation uh, policy. Actually, initially was introduced as a bargaining chip. However, once this policy was introduced, it's impossible to backtrack, right? How can mm -hmm. you, on one day one, you promise asylum or give the prisoners freedom. Then the next day, you say, oh, we got a deal with the communists. We're going to send the prisoners back. Mm. So that's just your advice. How can you announce such a policy? You know, that's it's irreversible. So this is not well thought out. So voluntary repatriation actually uh, is one of the two policies American adopt, Americans adopted. This one is in Pemenjong. However, I think probably more consequential that allowed the hijacking of the war by the prisoners was another policy, which was totally, which was the the origin of the policy, two policies totally unrelated, but mm. their work, their effect, when they, their results was pretty decisive or it's very explosive. The other policy is a, the indoctrination. Actually, of course, we hear about all these allegations was by the Americans after the war about the Chinese brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Americans also did this reorientation or reindoctrination in prison camps. Actually, in General Omar Bradley, the chief of the Joint Chiefs, Joint Chiefs, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in his mm -hmm. memoir, he used the term. This, this is the National Security Council paper 81-1, which was signed by Truman in September 1950, a few days before the Incheon landing. Yeah. So in that the National Security Paper 81-1 has this one famous, uh, uh, famous is famous known as this masterpiece obfuscation. Mm -hmm. So the number one conclusion was to authorize the UN troops uh, to cross the 38th parallel to unify North Korea, provided China or, or civilian doesn't did, didn't intervene. 
but that that's a well known that consequence marching north unify the country but number two is consequence of this is a very long document it has like more than 20 conclusions paragraphs wow. wow but one of the most consequential in my view actually this book argue is that reindoctrination so how to deal with the north korean prisoners so mm. that's so that's the we use the term brainwashing whatever terms you use that conclusion 21 the u.s should immediately make an intensive effort using all information media to turn the inevitable bitterness resentment of the war victimized korean people away from the u.s and to direct it toward the korean communists Soviet union and depending on the role they play the chinese communists so this was before china intervened ah. this is 1950 uh, yeah. september, september yeah this few days Truman approved this on the 11th, as the four days before Inchon landing. So they're already thinking about it. But they thought it was just the propaganda. They had a view that once the country unified, how we're going to educate, re yeah. reform the Korean mind, right? Right. And more importantly, the paragraph number 22, in order to effect the reorientation of the Korean people to cause defection of the enemy troops in the field and to train North Korean personnel to participate in activities looking to unification of the country, the following steps should be appropriate. Establish in principle the treatment of POWs after their transfer to place of internment should be directed toward their exploitation, training, and the use for psychological warfare purposes. Then set up a pilot-scale interrogation indoctrination training center for the POWs. So this, the gist of this document was transmitted to MacArthur. Mm -hmm. So use General Omar Bradley's words to brainwash in his memoir, to brainwash the, the North Korean people. So, of course, if, but the whole idea is after the unification of the country, but however, a month later, when China intervened, right. the unification of the country is out of question. Yeah. However, the, this policy continued to be implemented on the North Korean prisoners. But when the Chinese prisoners appeared, then this program was expanded to cover mm -hmm. the Chinese prisoner, which totally doesn't make any sense because the U.S. had no no plan to unify or to unify China for Chiang Kai-shek, right? Right. So what's the point to put the Chinese prisoners through this brainwashing or reindoctrination? Of course, in theory, you think about the German prisoners in World War II, you give them education, you yeah. send them back to Germany as an agent for democratization or free free thinking, ambassador of free thinking. Mm -hmm. But in the China case, that's totally, U.S. had no plan for that. However, mm -hmm. once this this order was sent down, was never reviewed. Mm -hmm. And then Washington actually approved MacArthur's request to expand this reorientation program to include the Chinese prisoners. But if you do such a thing to the Chinese prisoners, you endanger their lives. If they return to China, yeah. they'll be persecuted. But the Americans never thought about this because they did not, not understand for Chinese communists, that's the most threatening thing you can do to the threatening fact is this prisoner return as an agent of foreigners. So actually you endanger the lives. That's why so many prisoners, they, they wanted to go to Taiwan mm -hmm. once they were forced to participate in this kind of activities. Yeah. So that's why the anti-communist ranks swelled. So a lot of people were were persuaded. Some people may be persuaded. Some people were feel threatened because or out of fear. They, mm. 
they are not returned to China, so they have to follow their leaders, claiming that they, they have become anti-communists. So this program, this brainwashing program, American style, was very effective, but that's the result was not something, the outcome was not something the Americans had anticipated. They never thought about this. Mm. So it came as a huge shock. So that's, I argue, this is the reason the U.S., in the American history, whatever, you know, never hear about this because that's right. embarrassment. It was a success, but it was a huge embarrassment. Now, I know I, I said I'd asked you the last question, but I've got one more that's just come up in me. Um, how has your book been received in China by Chinese scholars so far? Are they surprised to learn that really it was uh, Chiang Kai-shek's regime that, that had hijacked the war and had the upper hand? I think it's still, uh, it, it is a controversial formula. I think most people novel, but I, we haven't seen the full discussion of this because in China, this book cannot be, I mean, very, very few people can get to read this book. But Professor Shen Zhihua, he commented on this book once I gave a talk, he was a discussant, and he liked the book. Mm -hmm. But I think for him, he might still think it might be a little bit stretch to say it's a hijacked war. I'm, I'm, um, but but in the end, I'm only I'm only claiming the second half was hijacked. I'm not claiming the whole war was hijacked. But uh, so far, no one can actually refute my theory. Mm -hmm. But people just say, yeah, they can. There must be something else. Just like uh, Professor Weathers speak uh, their their argument, right? Because Stalin had this idea. Of course, it's in their interests, but they need this leverage. But this issue, prisoner of war, provided the leverage yeah. to Stalin so he could continue the war. But of course, you can argue, yeah, there must be something else. If this, if this uh, wasn't, uh, there wasn't a president, there might be other issue. But historical fact is that that's the issue, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in China, I think people come to see this. Uh, actually, there's a pretty wide popular interest on this. Mm. But as you know, in China, even Shen Zhihua, now he's a censor. He cannot talk uh, or there, there's no platform for him to talk. He cannot publish. Right. And so... But uh, on the internet, actually, my book, uh, initially I signed a book contract with the Chinese University Press Yes. And yeah, in Hong Kong. And they published several excerpts of my Chinese translation. And it was oh, yeah. very widely widely read and mm -hmm. had a lot of reaction. But somehow, it very, very quickly, it was, was forced, was censored. Oh, dear. And, and the press was criticized by the mm -hmm. government for, for such a... Make those provocative claims, or but it's just so different from their traditional uh, interpretation. But yeah. I think one thing uh, uh, people will come to see the value of this uh, this work because I make this claim. Uh, I should make, provide this in this calculation. I think if people see this formula, see this calculation, or this equation, they'll remember this book. I think even if they're not one hundred percent convinced, I think they'll remember this. For the Americans, about twelve, more than 12,000 American soldiers were killed in the mm -hmm. last two years of the war, mm. which was fought mostly over prisoners. And with very little territorial change, the only outcome was 14,000 prisoners went to Taiwan. Yeah. So that is to say, to give one Chinese prisoner the freedom to not return home, one American boy was killed. Right, so it's it's a it's a one for one uh, equation, and that's a very dramatic um, sort of you know boiled down way of of looking at it. Sorry, but that's that's why the American government doesn't want people to know this. Yeah. Right, but for the Chinese, uh, said let's assume one hundred eighty thousand soldiers were killed or 
during the war, just some half of them killed in the second half. Probably it's about right because aerial bombing. Mm -hmm. So to deny one Chinese prisoner's right to go to Taiwan, then yeah. six Chinese soldiers died to prevent them from going. For the North Koreans, the, the number even more staggering. Altogether, 280,000 Koreans were killed in the aerial bombing alone in the war. That's just some half of them were killed in the second half of the war over prisoners. Yeah. That means to prevent one Chinese prisoner to go to Taiwan, then 10 Koreans were killed in aerial bombing. Gee. Of course, the North Koreans will not appreciate this. No. That's right. Well, it's, a, it, it's an amazing uh, job that you've done putting this book together, traveling the world, interviewing people and, and looking at all the archive documents. It's a whole new perspective. I encourage people to have a look at it. The book is The Hijacked War, the stories of uh, the story of Chinese POWs in the Korean War. Thank you once again, Professor David Cheng Chang, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Jekyll. It's great talking to you. We'll make sure to put the, uh, the title of the book and also your uh, Twitter feed uh, in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our podcast today. If you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much, and listen again next time. <laughs>